Hi, this is Jerry Mintz, and uh, today we're very fortunate to have Peter Gray with us. Um, and of course, I've known Peter for a long time. We've known each other for a long time. Um, and uh, he's doing very important work, uh, and I'd like to let everybody know a little more about the kind of work that uh, that you're doing, Peter. So, um, so I'm, it's hard to know where to start, but uh, why don't you talk about what you do, what your main work is, and how you've kind of wound up uh, involved with self-directed education? Yeah, well, I'm... Um uh, a research professor. I'm retired from teaching, but I taught for 30 years at Boston College. Um, and um, I uh, was in the psychology department. I've done a, kind of a wide range of research, and I wrote a textbook, on an introductory textbook on psychology, which is now in its seventh edition. Um, and... Um, at some point along the way, I got interested in education. Um, I had been doing quite different research before then. I had been doing looking at the binding of certain hormones in the brains of rats and mice and how they affected motivated behavior. So I was an entirely different realm of research. And then um, at some point, actually in the, in the late 1970s, my son began really rebelling in school, the public school he was going to, and uh, it led me, for his sake, to really uh, look into uh, what alternatives there might be for him for education. He clearly wasn't going to tolerate the, what he saw to be the prison-like school that he was in, nor would any other school that was anything like what we usually think of a school going to um, going to satisfy him. Uh, that's putting him mildly. He was just totally objecting to any any kind of coercion related to his learning. So, um, so we found the Sudbury Valley School at that time, and. Um, you know, even though I was uh, familiar with I, with, with uh, ideas uh, similar to those that were, were were the founding principles of Sudbury Valley School, I, as you know, Jerry, I was familiar with those ideas because my mom had been talking about them, and she and you had collaborated in starting a, a little school in Vermont that um, that was founded on sort of a free school principles, uh, inspired in some ways by Summerhill. Uh, so here at Sudbury Valley, that was a school like that, and I had never really given at a lot of thought. I was aware of what my mom was doing, what you were doing. I was aware of the whole free school movement. I had read Neil's Summerhill, but I hadn't given it a lot of um, serious thought. But now here my son was going to be attending this school. And so I figured, well, I better learn more about it. And uh, not only did I start doing a lot of reading about um, what I'm now calling self-directed education, but also um, decided I wanted to do a follow-up study of the graduates of the Sudbury Valley School, school in Framingham, uh, which uh, was a school where students uh, from age four on through the late teenage years are free to follow their own interests. No courses, no curriculum, no <laughs> evaluation. Um, if there's courses at all, it, they're organized by the students. Um, 
And um, I was wondering, well, can students go on from this to um, get jobs? Can they go on to higher education if they want? Um, I was really happy that my son was happy. He was now 10 years old when he started uh, his schooling there. I was happy that he was happy, but um, I was concerned about his future, um, as most people would be, actually, who are who haven't had a lot of experience, direct experience with this kind of education. So I ended up doing a follow-up study along with uh, a guy named David Chanoff, who was uh, at that time a part-time staff member at the school uh, who helped me identify uh, and find the graduates of the school at that time. And that study absolutely convinced me that this school was working as a um, educational institution in the sense that the graduates were going on to good jobs. They were happy in life. They, those who wanted to go on to higher education weren't having any difficulty doing it. Um, and so as a parent, it led me to relax. <laughs> okay, this is not going to be a disaster for my son to go to this really unusual school. So, Peter, you said you were curious as an academician. Uh, what were you curious about? Well, uh, I, I was curious now. Now that I saw that it was working well for my son, I was curious. And, and since I had done this study that showed it, that showed students became educated at this school. In the sense, you know, the only meaningful definition of being educated, as far as I'm concerned, is that it means you go on to live a satisfying and productive life in, in which you're doing meaningful things, you're contributing more to the world than you're taken from it, and so on. Um, by all those definitions, the um, these graduates were going on to happy lives. And so then uh, you know, convinced me this school works as an educational institution. And then what I got curious about is how does it work? Um, how does it work? I, I'm really an evolutionary-oriented psychologist. I'm interested in human nature, how that nature came about by, by natural selection. And so it really got me thinking about the nature of children. You know, they're so curious. They're so playful. They're so sociable. They're so willful. Peter, you... I've heard you talk a little bit about this from an anthropological and his and almost prehistorical point of view. Is that how did you get to that point? Yeah. So the uh, so, so let me just let me just get to that. So uh, I was curious about all of that, and and it led to sort of two different lines of uh, research, uh, which I see is very closely related. One of them was to conduct more research at the Sudbury Valley School. Primarily, I had a graduate student who did his doctoral dissertation based on many, many observations at the school, um, seeing how children learn through their self-directed activities. And it, after a while, it became less surprising that they became educated. You know, when you really look at what kids are doing when they're playing and exploring and just talking to one another, as especially teenagers do, yeah, it's really eye-opening, the sophistication of what's happening, the level of intellect that's involved. Um, so that was one path, how, how, the, how self-directed education works, how it, how it, how it is, um, how this combination of playfulness and curiosity and sociability and willfulness and concern for your own future all comes together to 
permit, to allow, to motivate young people to educate themselves when they have the opportunity to do so. It also led to another line of research, what you're referring to now, um, to look into how um, how children in hunter-gatherer cultures become educated. Um, naturally, as a evolutionary psychologist, I would be interested in that because during most of our um, history as human beings, we were all hunter-gatherers. Agriculture is uh, only ten or 11,000 years old <laughs> and younger than that in most parts of the world. Uh, so during the great bulk of our evolution as human beings, we were all hunter-gatherers. And some groups have survived into relatively modern times as hunter-gatherers and have been studied by anthropologists. And so I was curious, what, um, what do we know about children's education in such cultures. And so along with a, another graduate student, I did a survey of anthropologists, 10 anthropologists who among them have lived in seven different hunter-gatherer cultures, and um, found amazingly consistent stories from every one of them, even though these were different cultures in different parts of the world, so, some in Africa, a couple in Asia, a couple in South America. Uh, the stories were uh, remarkably similar. Uh, the children in these cultures um, are allowed to play and explore essentially all the time. Uh, there's almost no concept of teaching. In fact, there's no real concept of teaching that equates with our concept of teaching. They, Adults will point out poisonous mushrooms and things like that that are really dangerous to the kids, but they don't have the sense that you have to that it's adults' responsibility to educate children about what they need to know in order to grow into successful adults, except for those things that are truly dangerous. They point those things out. They simply allow children the time and space and opportunity to educate themselves, um, and they do that by allowing children basically dawn to dusk as free time to play and explore on their own. And so what was fascinating to me is what these anthropologists were reporting that they were observing in hunter-gatherer cultures was remarkably similar to what I was observing at the Sudbury Valley School. So it led me to come to the conclusion, in a sense, that what, even though Sudbury Valley didn't start off, nor did the other schools that, uh, that uh, were formed along similar principles, start off with the idea of emulating a hunter-gatherer band. They, in fact, in some ways, were emulating a hunter-gatherer band. They were providing the same kinds of conditions for self-directed education that occurs in hunter-gatherer bands. And... Um, so if you're curious, I could expand on those conditions a little bit because I think that um, once one thinks about what those conditions are, it become, and once one, once one realizes that those conditions can be provided in our culture, it's not so surprising that self-directed education could work. Well, you know, I've, I've heard about a connection with anthropology before in, in, in relationship to this kind of education. I, sometimes Malinowski's work with the Trobriand Islanders is referred to, I don't want to get too much into this, but that part has to do with sort of a lack of neurosis. Is that is that connected at all, do you think? 
Well, you know, that hasn't been my focus, but there certainly is a lack of neurosis. I mean, uh, every anthropologist I've talked to and questioned about said these kids are just remarkably well-adjusted, <laughs> emotionally resilient, socially competent, um, confident kids. Um, we talk about, you know, we there is so much depression and anxiety, even among children in our culture. It's tragic that this happens. When I talk to anthropologists about this who have observed hunter-gatherer cultures, they say it's just not existent in hunter-gatherer cultures. It doesn't exist. Well, you know, I, I was wondering, um, you know, just to skip a little bit back to the present here, since this does seem to be clear, uh, and there's even research supporting it, do you have any sense of why our schools are so far away from that? Well, you know, I think you have to you have to look historically for that answer. And um, you know, schools as we know them were developed at uh, a terrible time in human history. You know, we what, once once we became agricultural and we developed systems of land ownership. Um, we went from a world in which, um, in which there were no bosses and subordinates, no slaves and masters, no employers and employees, where people, you know, hunter-gatherer culture is another term that anthropologists use for them, it's egalitarian cultures. They're the most egalitarian cultures that have ever been observed. And part of the reason they're egalitarian is because there's, they don't own land, they're nomadic, they move around. And if you move around, you can't accumulate property. <laughs> you can't, no sense in having more than you can carry on your back. And with their way of life, sharing is the means to survival. You've got to share everything. Right, but do, do you think that there's something, some reason, uh, for example, as John Gatto says, that the schools are the way they are. Maybe they're trying to accomplish something else. Well, let, let, yeah, let me. That's exactly what I'm getting to, Jerry. So, what happened is once once uh, we became agricultural and we had land ownership, then we began to move into a society in which there are people which in which we had class structures. We had people who owned the land. And we had people who did not own the land who are now dependent on those who own the land. Ultimately, this evolved into, throughout Europe and Asia, evolved into feudalism, where the great majority of people were in one way or another servants or slaves or serfs, <laughs> uh, absolutely dependent upon obedience to lords and masters. The whole goal of child-raising changed. The, the, the hunter-gatherers who uh, valued children's willfulness, <laughs> valued their play, um, that had to change because if you're, you can't raise children to be willful, to want to do their own thing, if you are raising them to be a servant. That could get them killed. You've got to just unquestioningly obey. I think what we have to understand is that schools, as we know them today, emerged out of that culture. Well, that that's a very that's a very strong statement. Then, and so I think in thinking about it, it goes a lot further than we might ordinarily think, in the sense that 
uh, if we're going to try to create schools that create so-called willful kids, <laughs> ones that follow their own interests and, and make waves and so on, um, how is that going to work for those kids? Well, you know, so I it, it, it works very well for those kids because we, although we still have class structures, we are nothing like the system of class structure that was present when schools were first initiated. And yet we're stuck with those, stuck with those kinds of schools. Indeed, we now are a world where the most successful people are people who are creative. Uh, who... Uh -huh. So you say we're kind of, we're kind of evolving in a different direction and, and, and the structure hasn't kept up with that. And that's exactly right, and you know. So you read the you read the writings of the, as you know, the the, the schools that are kind of the, the forerunners of what we have today. Historically, a, a straight line chain started, uh, especially uh, especially in uh, Prussia, uh, but even but also in the colonies in Massachusetts <laughs> as early as the uh, 1600s. Um, and they were founded uh, for two reasons, to teach reading, so actually I should say three reasons, to reach, teach reading so children could read the Bible for themselves. Uh, young people, the belief was, unlike the Catholics, the Protestants believe that you have to read the Bible yourself. It's not enough to just hear the interpretation from the Pope uh, and down the hierarchy. Uh, but even more important than reading the Bible, of course, is believing the Bible. So, and uh, at least as important as all of that, and maybe underlying everything more important, is obedience to authority. And so the schools were developed to teach reading, to teach, to indoctrinate children in biblical doctrine, and to teach obedience. Now, we no longer use schools, secular schools, to indoctrinate in biblical doctrine, but the schools, it's important to understand that the schools were designed for indoctrination. Nobody had any idea that schools should be served to produce critical thinking, quite the opposite. They were to suppress critical thinking. But what you're saying is that, what you're saying is that now this needs to be reestablished. Well, so now we're still stuck with those schools. I think most teachers who go into teaching, you know, at least what I meet, they're really nice people. And they understand that critical thinking is important, most of them. Most of them understand that creativity is important, but they're stuck with schools that were not designed for that. Well, okay, so we with schools that, that were designed for a different kind of purpose. So, so we've got about 10 more minutes uh, left, and I would like to skip more to the present. Now, of course, this year you actually had a big presence at the Aero Conference, and you were talking about the organization that you have been working on that is promoting self-directed education. So what can you tell us about that? Well, this is the Alliance for Self-Directed Education. Uh, it's a nonprofit organization uh, founded um, uh, in uh, June of, uh, of 2016, so we're a little more than a year old. Um, the purpose of the Alliance is to um, bring together uh, in some kind of unified way 
the many people who are actually involved in self-directed issues, the many families who are involved, whether they're doing what they call unschooling or whether they're attending a, a school such as Sudbury Valley or an, an agile learning center or another kind of setting or a learning center that's set, uh, that, that is a place for self-directed education. We want to create a kind of consistent terminology, a kind of unified way of talking about it. We want to create a brand. We're trying to get out this idea of, of uh, self-directed education, with capital S, capital D, capital E, as a brand term. And if everybody can use, if, if, or if, at least if many people will, are, will use that term, so it gets out there. So people will have heard of it. So it will no longer seem so strange to people. Uh, that that would help uh, spread this movement. We see this really at, as a human rights movement. Um, children are suffering in schools, even those children who are supposedly doing well in schools, uh, getting high grades and so on, they're suffering in schools. And, and this is not being acknowledged to the degree that it ought to be. Children's basic human rights are violated every day that they're in school. Um, and so part of the foundation for our movement is that children are human beings and, um, and they deserve the same respect and the same human rights that, um, that all adults deserve. Uh, the only rationale for uh, depriving them of such rights would be if we believed we absolutely had to deprive them of such rights, otherwise there would be disastrous consequences in terms of their growing up. The research that I've done and that others have done and the experience of people who've been involved in self-directed education for a long time proves that that children grow up just fine without coercive prison-like schooling. And so this really makes it a human rights issue. And we, uh, involved with the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, are doing what we can to help um, uh, a ground roots movement emerge. We're helping to establish local self-directed education um, organizations and local communities um, that will bring people together who are doing this, who are thinking about doing this, who need to talk to others who are doing it before they dare try it, who are willing to, in public libraries and other places, show uh, films about self-directed education, help educate the community about it. You, you, you've been, um, you've been around the country and around the world a lot. Um, talking about these things, would you say, are you getting a sense that this movement is growing, that there will be a change? I am definitely getting a sense that it's growing. It's growing, uh, I wish it were growing faster, but it is growing at an accelerating rate. And um, so, so now there are... It, it, Right now, as as uh, you probably know, at least uh, at the the last survey that the U.S. government did, uh, which was in 2012, um, uh, for which there is published data, there about about three about three and a half percent of school age children in the United States are being homeschooled. And the evidence is that a growing number of those homeschoolers are uh, actually unschoolers, or at least relaxed homeschoolers, as they call. 
Do, could you could you define could you define unschooling for those people who don't know what it is? Well, homeschooling, of course, is uh, is the uh, it's the removal of your children from uh, from any kind of established school, with the idea that they're going to be educated at home. Although that's a little bit of a misnomer because they certainly aren't confined to home; they're being educated through their interactions with the community, through their, not just through their family, but through connections throughout the community. So homeschooling is, uh, is that, and, the, and most homeschoolers still offer some kind of a curriculum. In some cases, it's a religious curriculum. That was the initial motive for most homeschoolers was religious home education. But a growing number are doing it for other reasons, and a growing number today are doing it because they are seeing the pathology that's being created uh, by the standard school system. Many of them are seeing it, were seeing it in their own children, and they took the children out of school for that reason. They started homeschooling with a curriculum. Then they came to realize that uh, their children are doing really interesting things on their own initiative. And so why make them do a curriculum that doesn't interest them when they're doing really interesting things that they are interested in and learning at a more rapid rate and with more pleasure when they're following their own interests? So there's been a kind of a trend towards homeschooling as an alternative to to the coercive schooling at school. <laughs> and then within homeschooling, there's been a trend towards more and more recognition that um, children learn best when they are following their own interests. And so the parents become, become people who help uh, the children pursue their own interests rather than decide what it is they ought to be studying at any particular point. Of course, well, the growth of homeschooling has been explosive, of course, but I think unschooling may be growing even faster. I think so. We don't have firm data on that uh, because, of course, you register as a homeschooler. You don't register as an unschooler. Uh, but but the, the, the U.S. Uh, Department of Education does, in their poll, ask questions, ask some questions that get at the degree uh, to which the parents are... Um, are enforcing a curriculum, and um, there's a movement towards, although probably it's probably many more people not enforcing curriculum than will admit it, even on an anonymous poll, you know, uh, but, the, but nevertheless, even of those who say that they are not enforcing a curriculum and that the children are largely in charge of their own education at home uh, is growing. It's hard to say exactly how much. What about the growth of schools like Sudbury Valley and Democratic schools? Is that still hap happening also? That is definitely happening. Um, it's not growing as fast as homeschooling, unschooling is, and uh, the, the numbers of people who are in uh, Democratic or free schools, Centers for Self-Directed Education, is relatively small compared to the number of unschoolers. But it is growing. Certainly, there are all, you know, it seems like every week I'm hearing of another Sudbury model school that has uh, sprung up someplace in the world, um, uh, many in Europe, quite remarkably. Um, and so, uh, but also in the United States, new ones forming. Uh, the problem is that. Um, it's hard, as you know, to get such a school started. It's a lot of work. 
Uh, it's not financially rewarding. It, it takes people who are willing to make a lot of sacrifice to get such a school started. And until there's a certain critical number of students, it becomes hard to attract new families because, um, you know, the, the dynamics of such a school in some ways depend on there being sort of a critical mass of young people there because it's the young people, it's the students themselves that, um, that are really the greatest educational um, facility in such a school. So the, the students are learning from one another in an age-mixed environment. Another thing that that's happened is kind of a blurring and combining of these things. For example, we have a, a, a course for, for school starters, an online course for, for school starters, and we've discovered that a large percentage of them actually start as homeschool resource centers. And so there's a lot of people who are actually taking that approach of just building a group or a center for homeschoolers that may or may not evolve into a, into a school. I think that's a good point. I'm glad you raised that. That is definitely a trend uh, and, uh, and a very encouraging one. I think that the distinction between unschoolers and those who are attending some kind of a school or learning center for self-directed education is blurring, definitely. The, um, it's, it's easier to start a, a learning center for homeschoolers than to start a school because you don't have to go through the whole procedure of having it certified as a school uh, so that the children are not regarded as truant. Um, the, uh, if all the children are registered as homeschoolers, that satisfies that problem. It gives you a lot more flexibility as to what you can do in terms of developing a learning center. It also gives families more flexibility. They don't necessarily, uh, the children don't necessarily have to go there the same number of days as would be required if this were a school. Um, they can go for a few days a week or they can go for a few weeks and then, and then not go. Right, and, and a lot of people are actually starting hybrids, which are partly school, par partly homeschool. So we're seeing a lot of this. We've helped people start something like 100 different alternatives. It's the approach that we take to try to make an impact on education. But um, more and more of them are at least accommodating homeschoolers, and some of them are actually all considered to be homeschool. For example, Pono in New York City it functions like a school, but it's technically all the kids are homeschooling. That's right. There are a number of such schools here in Massachusetts, such schools, I call them schools, the learning centers here in Massachusetts that are exactly, exactly that. Well, of course, uh, Longview is... Uh, uh, there's a there's a bunch of them that take that approach. North Star in Massachusetts is a good prototype. Right. They actually help people start similar programs to that. Exactly. Yes. So so Peter, if people want to get involved in in your organization, uh, what should they do? Well, the first thing they should do is come to our website, the Alliance for Self-Directed Education, selfdirected.org. Easy to find. Um, read uh, read about it. Um, Join um, yes, uh, and and donate. You know, any to do the work we want to do, of course, requires uh, at least some amount of money. We've got a wonderful bunch of volunteers, but there's some things that we have to pay for. But read about it. See what see what we're doing. Um, we've got forums on the on the website in which uh, people involved in self-directed education are discussing various issues about what they're doing. We've got a magazine called Tipping Points in which people 
talk about their experiences with um, self-directed education. Um, uh, we're involved in creating, as I mentioned earlier on, uh, we're in creating, uh, helping to helping to generate uh, local groups of uh, people involved in self-directed education. So some people still, even today, feel quite isolated doing self-involved, especially some of the unschooling families. They don't know other unschooling families in the area, and we're trying to help connect people uh, and. Uh, enable the formation of local groups so people can get together, the kids can play with one another, the adults can talk about what it means to be an adult and when your kids are educating themselves. And um, also, our, whole, our great hope is that these local communities will help spread the word within their local community about um, uh, about the advantages of self-directed education and encourage other people to do it. Okay, well, Peter, thanks a lot for coming on this podcast today, and we really appreciate it and very much appreciate the work you're doing and the fact that you've helped keynote for us several times, and, you know, I think that it's uh, it's very, very amazing stuff that you're doing. Well, thank you, Jerry, and, and as you know, I'm a longtime uh, supporter of everything that you have done, and thank you for that. All right, well, thanks a lot, Peter. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Education Revolution podcast. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions, you can always email us at jerryero at aol.com. That's J-E-R-R-Y-A-E-R-O at aol.com. Or call the Arrow office at 516-621-2195.